Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For over 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa and join me as we tread the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, walking in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this next episode of Footsteps of the Fallen and thank you to all of you as usual who've downloaded the recent episodes and the two-part episode we did on the Battle of Luz. It seems to have gone down very well and thank you for the feedback and the kind comments that have been left. So what's been going on at Footsteps HQ? Well it's been a, a busy a busy time actually. We've had quite a few things going on. I was on the radio on Friday being interviewed about a man called Charles Edward Wilson, who was the first England rugby international to be killed during the Great War. I was talking to BBC Radio Berkshire about him. And it's this theme of sport that's going to lead into today's podcast. But perhaps more excitingly is the podcast website is now live and up and running. You can find it at www.footstepsofthefallen.com. Dot com And there's lots of things on there. There's information about um, some of the things that we're doing, what's coming up in the future. There's a blog, there's a link to the podcast. And you'll be able to see as well the images from my Instagram feed, which relate to each podcast as it's published. So I will make sure that I post on the Instagram feed the pictures that are relevant to the most recent podcast. And you can see some of the places that I'm talking about One of the things that we've done with the new website is we've given our listeners the opportunity to help support the development of the podcast and help us to keep producing entertaining content for you to enjoy. We've partnered with both buymeacoffee.com and we're also members of Patreon and it's a way that you are able to contribute if you feel so inclined to do so to help with the production costs and the website hosting and editing costs and licensing etc of the podcast it's very simple to sign up and it's it's very cheap it's very safe and it's very secure and i would like to give a shout to those people who actually have been the first people to help footsteps of the fallen podcast so thank you Very much indeed to Richard Croft and Joyce Watson, both of whom have contributed via Buy Me A Coffee. And also thank you to our first Patreon supporter, Julian Lewis from Integris Global. And thank you very much indeed. Your support is very much appreciated. And thank you for having confidence in me to keep producing quality content for you to enjoy. If you would like to know more about this then please have a look on the website on on the page called support us and you will find all the information that you need in all the years that i've been visiting the battlefields and cemeteries and memorials of world war one one of the things that's always particularly 
interested me is the epitaphs that families chose to have on the headstones of their fallen loved ones. In theory, they were allowed to have up to 66 letters, and quite often this was overlooked, and there are many inscriptions that are longer. And one of the things that I enjoy doing when I'm walking up and down rows of headstones and taking in the peace and tranquility of the cemeteries is to look at some of the epitaphs and some of them are truly very poignant they're incredibly personal they're very emotive Um, some of them are extremely anguished Uh, some of them are quite angry but they're all very different and they're all very heartfelt and the last time that I was on the Somme I was in a cemetery called Dive Cops and when I was walking along the headstones. I came to the headstone of a rifleman, Samuel Gunn, and the inscription that his parents had chosen for his epitaph particularly caught my eye, as it simply says, well played lad. It struck me as a very unusual thing to have on uh, as an epitaph on a headstone. It's the sort of thing that one would say to a sportsman as they come off the pitch having scored the winning goal or scored the winning runs in a cricket match. Perhaps not really what one would associate to have as an epitaph. But this got me thinking that there is much been written about the comparison between sport and War, and I think uh, a lot of it invites a, a, an awful lot of cliches, if I'm honest. And um, but I think many of the qualities that make sportsmen and sports teams are very similar to those qualities that make an effective fighting force. It's the teamwork, it's the camaraderie, it's the willingness to undergo pain in the course of supporting your teammates or your fellow men. And it got me thinking about the role that sportsmen played during the Great War and in today's journey through the footsteps of the fallen we're going to be travelling backwards and forwards between France and Belgium and we're going to look at the stories of some of the sportsmen sporting stars of the generation who served in the military during the Great War and sadly as was so often the case quite often gave their lives as they journeyed from playing field to battlefield. Let's begin our journey now. So our journey today begins at the magnificent French memorial which sits on the top of Notre Dame de Lorette Ridge in Artois, just near Vimy Ridge. And from the top of the ridge at Notre Dame de Lorette there is a magnificent vista across the flat countryside of Artois. For those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, you'll know that I am somewhat obsessed with the battlefields of 1915 and the fighting in Artois. So this is one of my favourite places to go, not just for the view, but also for the the sheer scale and impressive nature of the French National Memorial, which stands on the top of the ridge here and there are thousands of crosses of French soldiers who died in this area in France and in the memorial chapel which stands on the in the middle of the site are a large number of memorial plaques to various soldiers uh, not just French soldiers but British soldiers and Belgian soldiers as well and the last time I was there there was one plaque 
in particular which caught my uh, attention. The memorial was to a man by the name of Francois Faber and it was quite interesting what was written on there because it informed everyone who read the plaque that he was the winner of the 1909 Tour de France and he was actually a, a Luxembourgian but he considered himself French and he served with the French army during the First World War. He won the 1909 Tour de France um, back in the days when this was ridden on bikes with no gears and stages were anything up to sort of four to five hundred kilometres in length and it was a, a real a real man's sport back in those days. And Faber enlisted into the French army. He served with the French Foreign Legion and he was killed near Arras on the 9th of May 1915, a date obviously which we've visited before with the fighting at Aubert's Ridge and he was killed as part of the French attack in the same area. There's much conjecture about what happened when he died. Some say that he had been informed by his senior officer that his wife had just given birth and he jumped up in the air in celebration and was shot by a sniper. This is, I think, a, a rather nicely romantic sort of tale, but I think the reality of it is that he was killed whilst trying to rescue a, a wounded comrade from in the middle of no man's land. And France at the time of the Great War, as it is now, is obsessed with the sport of cycling. And and really, as soon as the Great War was over, the desire to boost public morale by having cycling races was very evident. And in 1919, there was a race organised called the Tour of the Battlefields. And it's been covered in a, an excellent book that was published last year called Riding in the Zone Rouge. And it's about the, the tour of the battlefield itself. And of course, four years of war had done awful damage to the infrastructure and the roads and things like that. And when the Paris to Roubaix cycle race was restarted after the war, it ran over the battlefields of northern France. This was over countryside that had suffered four years of war, of artillery fire and damage. And as the race wound its way across the countryside, the debris and the detritus of war were still lying in the fields at the side of the road. The villages were still, in many cases, little more than rubble or shells of what they'd used to be. And the journalists who were covering the race on behalf of the national press described the battlefields as saying that the race had gone through these terrible areas and that by watching the race, they truly had seen the hell of the North. And this was a moniker that still is applied to Paris-Roubaix to this day. It's known as the hell of the North still, um, often referred to as une dimanche en enfer, or a Sunday in hell. And many people believe that the title hell of the North comes from the, the pavé, the cobblestones that the cyclists ride over. But in fact, it owes its name to... That journalist and his description of the battlefields. The campaign in the United Kingdom to try and get sportsmen to enlist into the army began very early in the war. In fact, as early as August 1914. At the time, Field Marshal Lord Roberts published an article which appeared on many of the front pages of the national press. And it said 
How very different is your action to that of the men who can still go on with their cricket and football, as if the very existence of the country were not at stake? This is not the time to play games, wholesome as they are in times of piping peace. We are engaged in a life and death struggle. And what it was very clear that he was trying to say was to the sportsmen of Britain, it's time to stand up and be counted and do your bit. And he was saying these words initially at the formation of a new battalion of the Royal Fusiliers. It's been set up by a businessman who was based in the city of London and it became known as the Stockbrokers Battalion simply because the majority of the men involved in it were stockbrokers and it was the first of what was known as the Powell's Battalions. This was an idea that had been promoted originally by General Sir Henry Rawlinson as a way to try and encourage groups of friends and workmates to serve together and it became very popular and the so-called Powell's Battalions is something we're going to look at in a later podcast but paid a particularly heavy toll Um, especially at the the Somme on the first day of the Somme later in the war itself. And this campaign that was launched by Lord Roberts was actually supported by a a very eminent figure in none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was the creator of Sherlock Holmes, an amateur footballer and occasional MCC cricketer. And he was involved in running a campaign which involved posters and announcements made at the halftime of sporting events that was encouraging people to enlist. And he famously said that if the cricketer had a straight eye, then let him look along the barrel of a rifle. And if a footballer had strength of limb, let them serve and march into the field of battle. And it's very stirring stuff and was designed to sort of appeal to the the teamwork and the camaraderie of Britain's sportsmen to enlist into the army. As part of the propaganda campaign, the British seized on a headline that had been published in the Frankfurter Zeitung newspaper and it informed potential soldiers that Germans disparagingly viewed young Britons as preferring to exercise their long limbs on the football ground rather than expose them to any sort of risk in the service of our country. The campaign was an undoubted success and many thousands of sportsmen rushed to enlist and some sports were particularly well represented. In fact football did uh, especially well of the 5,000 professional footballs at the time. Over 2,000 of them signed up to join the military. Indeed, the 17th Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment was actually known as the Footballers' Battalion because the majority of its members were former professional footballers. Tottenham Hotspur Football Club ran a campaign for its staff and its players and encouraged them to enlist into the army. And they duly did, and staff enrolled and fought together from 1915 onwards and at the end of the war 11 deaths of either staff or players from Tottenham Hotspur were recorded in the club's handbook. Newcastle United lost seven players, the same number of Hearts from Scotland and three of those players from Hearts, men by the names of Harry Wattle, Duncan Curry and Ernie Ellis were all killed on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. One of their teammates from Hearts, a man by the name of Paddy Crossan, was so badly injured that his right leg was tagged to be amputated and he begged the surgeon that, I need my legs, I'm a footballer. The surgeon did in fact manage to save his leg, but Crossan 
later died of damage to his lungs caused by poison gas at the age of only 22. From other football clubs as well, West Ham lost five players, Leighton Orient three, all of whom were killed on the Somme, with many others injured so badly that their careers were over. Of the clubs that gave men or encouraged men to join Bradford, Celtic, Preston, Hibernian, Bristol City, Arsenal, Manchester United and every club almost in between lost many of their star players killed in combat during the Great War. On a road near the small Somme village of Contalmaison stands a memorial to a man by the name of Donald Simpson Bell. It's called Bell's Redoubt and Bell was a professional footballer for Bradford Park Avenue and he was awarded the Victoria Cross during the Battle of the Somme five days before he was killed and a memorial was put on the site of his actions which was funded partly by the Professional Footballers Association but also by the Friends of the Green Howards Regiment which Bell was part of and it was made from stone that was brought over from Yorkshire. Donald Simpson Bell was believed to have been the first professional footballer to have joined the British Army during the First World War. He enlisted as a private into the West Yorkshire Regiment in November 1914 and by June 1915 he'd been promoted to sergeant and was then commissioned into the 9th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment which was known as the Green Howards. And the the Green Howards were in France from August 1915, where they were sent to a a quiet sector of the front near Armentieres. It was called informally to the troops, it was known as the nursery. And they were held in reserve on the opening day of the Battle of the Somme, but were called into action on the 5th of July, where they were ordered to attack a German position that was known as Horseshoe Trench. And it was during this action that Donald Bell was recommended for the Victoria Cross and his Victoria Cross citation for the London Gazette reads as follows. For most conspicuous bravery, during an attack, a very heavy enfilade fire was opened on the attacking company by a hostile machine gun. Lieutenant Bell immediately and on his own initiative crept up a communication trench and then followed by Corporal Colwell and Private Beatty rushed across the open under heavy fire and attacked the machine gun shooting the firer with his revolver and destroying gun and personnel with bombs. This brave act saved many lives and ensured the success of the attack. Five days later, this gallant officer lost his life, performing a similar act of bravery. Bell lost his life five days later during this second attack, and he was buried initially where he fell before he was moved to Gordon Dump, cemetery near Overlay on the Somme where he lies to this day and on the 25th of November 2010 Bell's Victoria Cross was purchased for £252,000 by the Professional Footballers Association and was put on display at the National Football Museum in Manchester. The sport of rugby contributed greatly to the First World War and over 130 Rugby internationals were killed during the First World War and from a, an English perspective there is perhaps no one more famous in the world of rugby who gave his life during the Great War than that of Ronald 
Paulton Palmer. He was the captain of England and he famously scored four tries in the match against France, which was the last international to be played before war broke out. He also holds the record for the most number of tries scored by an individual in the varsity match where he scored five, and that's a record that stands to this day. I have a particular interest in Ronald Poulton Palmer simply because he came from Reading, my hometown, and he was heir to the Huntley Palmer biscuit fortune. His uncle left the business to him when he died, and one of the conditions of his inheritance was that he was required to change his name to Palmer. In fact, he was christened Ronald Poulton, but is known universally as Poulton Palmer. And the reason being, as I said, is that to inherit the business, he was required to adopt the surname Palmer. Now, he enlisted into the army, having studied at Oxford University. Poulton Palmer had actually been in the army before war broke out. He was part of the 1st 4th Battalion of the Royal Berkshire Regiment, the Territorial Force. And At the outbreak of war in August 1914, he volunteered for overseas service and after a period of training in England, the battalion was sent over to France and sadly his experience of warfare was very brief. On the morning of the 5th of May 1915, having been on the Western Front for less than two months Poulton Palmer was involved in repairing a trench in the vicinity near to Plug Street Wood in southern Belgium when he exposed himself above the top of the trench, which was an extremely foolish thing to do. In fact, it was a court-martial offence. And as he put his head over the top of the parapet, a German sniper shot him through the head and he is buried in Hyde Park Corner Cemetery which is known as also known as Berkshire Cemetery very appropriately very appropriately so for a man who came from Reading and came from the county of Berkshire and his grave has become almost a site of pilgrimage for rugby and rugby players and rugby fans. Um, Lewis Moody the England International was involved in the centenary projects where some soil was brought from the pitch at Twickenham and was placed on Poulton Palmer's grave. It's a very poignant thing to do. Just four days later, on the 9th of May 1915, another famous sportsman, this time a New Zealander a man by the name of Tony Wilding, was killed in action during an attack on enemy sniper posts at the Battle of Neuve Chapelle. He was a member of the Royal Naval Air Service and prior to the war, Wilding had been the Wimbledon singles champion for four years running from 1910 through to 1913 and he also won the doubles final four times as well as a remarkably skilled tennis player. Many Australian sportsmen joined up to do their bit for the country and perhaps the most famous of them to die during the First World War was a man by the name of Frederick Septimus Kelly. He was born in Australia in 1881 but was educated in England. He was a pupil at Eton and Oxford University where he was renowned for being an outstanding sportsman. He was a very accomplished rower. He won the Diamond Skulls at Henley in 1902, 1903 and 1905 and was also a member of the 
team that won the gold medal at the London Olympics in 1908. He joined the British Army at the outbreak of war and fought at Gallipoli, where he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for outstanding and conspicuous bravery. And he was killed at beaucourt sur ancre on the 13th of November 1916. The sport of cricket suffered very heavily, in fact disproportionately heavily, during the Great War. Of the 210 county cricketers who signed up, over one in six of them were killed during the Great War, and none of whom were probably as famous perhaps as Kent's Colin Blythe, who's buried in Oxford Road Cemetery. We talked about him in the very first Footsteps of the Fallen podcast, but he was a truly remarkable cricketer, definitely the the Shane Warne of his generation, and who knows what feats he might have achieved. He was killed at the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917 whilst hit by shellfire while working on a railway line behind the lines. And say, if you're interested to, to hear more about him, have a look back through the podcast library for the first episode relating to Oxford Road Cemetery. Another cricketer killed during the First World War who has a particular place in the history of English literature was the Warwickshire bowler Percy Jeeves. He was killed on the Somme on the 22nd of July 1916, a remarkably talented bowler for Warwickshire. And he was the inspiration for Bertie Worcester's manservant Jeeves, written by the great P.G. Woodhouse, who had seen Percy Jeeves bowling in a match against Gloucestershire and was so impressed by his bowling that he decided to name Bertie Wooster's ingenious butler after him. The 1908 Olympic Games had been held in London and the 1912 Games, the last Games before the Great War, had been held in Stockholm. And the competitors from those two games paid a heavy price during the First World War. Many Olympic medal winners were killed throughout the fighting. And At the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm, one of the most remarkable races was the men's 5,000 metres. It made its Olympic debut that year in spectacular fashion with a battle between Finland's Hannes Kolimainen and France's Jean Bouin, who served a stirring race between them. And they broke the former world record by over 25 seconds. The Finn triumphed by 0.1 of a second. But within six years, three of the top six men who'd finished in that race would all be dead, casualties of the Great War. The silver medal winner, Bouin, was France's greatest distance runner, and he'd set world records in both 3,000 metres and 10,000 metres in 1911. He'd also won the International Cross Country championship uh, which was I guess the precursor to what we would now know as the world cross-country championships which he won in 1912 and sadly he was killed in 1914 by friendly fire where he was hit by French artillery fire near the Chemin des Dames in eastern France and the man who won the bronze medal George Hudson was regarded as one of the most promising distance runners that Britain had ever seen And he was killed in France just five weeks after the war started. And the man who came in six, a man by the name of Alex de Couteau, came from Canada and he was killed in the Battle of Passchendaele in October 1917. 
And by the time the war ended in November 1918, dozens of Olympic track and field athletes were among the dead who had been killed during the Great War. One of the most famous Olympians, certainly in British military history, was the only man to win the Victoria Cross twice during the Great War. His name was Noel Chavas. He was a captain in the Royal Army Medical Corps. And he graduated from Oxford University in 1907. He had a first-class degree. And he represented Britain in the 400 metres at the 1908 London Olympics. And he was killed at the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917. He's buried in Brandhurk New Military Cemetery in Belgium. So a truly remarkable athlete who was killed in the First World War was a man by the name of Wyndham Halswell. And he was an exceptional runner. He won the gold medal at the 400 metres at the 1908 Olympics. And in doing so, he became the first Briton to have won a full set of Olympic medals, having won a silver and a bronze in the preceding Olympic Games. And it was quite a a race, the 400 metres, was won in extraordinary circumstances. During the race itself, Wyndham found himself up against three American athletes. And during the tussle around the final bend, one of the American athletes punched Wyndham in the chest to stop him from coming past and there was an inquiry at the end of the race and it resulted in the American being disqualified and the remaining American athletes withdrew from the race in protest at the result leaving Wyndham promoted up to first place and winning the gold medal In 1914, the Boston Marathon was run and it was won by an Irish-Canadian athlete called Jimmy Duffy. He won the marathon at the 1912 Olympics and was killed in 1915 on the same day that the Boston Marathon of that year was being held. And another Irishman who lost his life during the Great War was by the name of Paddy Roach. He represented Great Britain at the 200 metres at the 1908 Olympic Games, but he missed getting into the final by one place. And he was awarded the military cross just two days before his death in Baghdad. And the man who beat him to the last place in that 200 metre final was called George Hawkins. He too was killed in Mesopotamia. But the interesting thing about Hawkins is that he was coached by a man called Sam Musabini, who would later guide Harold Abrahams to the 100 metres gold medal at the 1924 Olympics, a story that was immortalised in the film Chariots of Fire. We heard about the Olympic competitor Noel Chavas was the only man to win two Victoria Crosses during the Great War. But a man by the name of Philip Neem holds a distinction that is held by only one man. He was the only person in military and Olympic history to have won both a Victoria Cross and a gold medal at the Olympic Games. Neem was awarded the Victoria Cross in December 1914 at Neuve Chapelle in France and his citation reads as follows. On the 19th of December at Neuve Chapelle, France, Lieutenant Neem, in the face of very heavy fire, engaged the Germans in a single-handed bombing attack, killing and wounding a number of them. He was able to check the enemy advance for three quarters of an hour and to rescue all the wounded whom it was possible to move. 
Neem survived the war and went on to represent Great Britain in the 1924 Olympic Games, where he won a gold medal in what was called the Running Deer event. It was one of the shooting events at the Games, which involved teams of four, each firing a single shot at a moving target which simulated an animal. And to this day, Philip Neem remains the only man to have been awarded both a Victoria Cross and an Olympic gold medal. I'd like to end this podcast on sportsmen in the Great War with the words of the poem by A.E. Houseman to an athlete dying young. The time you won your town the race, we chaired you through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by, and home we brought you shoulder high. Today the road all runners come, shoulder high we bring you home, and set you at your threshold down, townsman of a stiller town. So thank you very much for joining me on this look at some of the sportsmen who died during the First World War, and I look forward to having your company in our next journey through the footsteps of the fallen. Please don't forget to subscribe if you're enjoying it, that way you won't miss whenever we publish a new episode. Thank you very much indeed, and goodbye.